why would I, in a benign business setting, making a profit, why wouldn't I want to be inclusive by um, befriending a same-sex couple coming into my business and using that actually as a witness and business model to witness to them? Thanks for joining us today on Do Justice. This is Steve Allred, and today I talk with Greg Hamilton. Now, as president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, Greg has decades of experience advocating for religious liberty issues in state legislatures and speaking on religious freedom to groups of people. Greg has been a friend of mine for several years, and he has a rich knowledge of American and political history and and current events, which always makes for informative and interesting conversations. Well, today we talk about a few things. First, the work of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, and also how Jesus would treat the LGBTQ community, especially in today's very highly charged political environment. And finally, what Greg thinks about a piece of legislation that was recently introduced into Congress called the Fairness for All Act. So thanks for listening in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Greg Hamilton, let's just jump right in here. First of all, thanks for uh, joining me today on the Do Justice podcast. You're welcome. And you work as the executive director of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. What do you do there? Tell us about the association and, and some of your work. We are a nonpartisan government relations and uh, anti-discrimination um, workplace uh, mediation uh, program that champions religious freedom, human rights, civil rights for all people of goodwill um, in the uh, academic, judicial, civic, legislative, uh, ecumenical, uh, interfaith, and um, uh, workplace arena, mm-hmm. uh, arenas, and that's in the states of Alaska, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington. And we've achieved a lot uh, in the 28 years now that we've been uh, fully organized. Uh, it was it was actually brainchild in 1991, uh, or should I say reorganized in 1991. But it, uh, it was actually organized in 1906, ironically. In fact, it's, we are the oldest um, civil and religious liberty uh, advocacy program in the entire Northwest. So covering those five states, and so that's it's quite a legacy, mm-hmm. and we've achieved a lot. We were one of the um, lead um, advocates against Pierce versus Society of Sisters case before the Supreme Court in 1920, which tried to outlaw all the Ku Klux Klan tried to get the Governor Pierce of Oregon to outlaw all religious schools because. The Ku Klux Klan, which basically owned or at least basically strong uh, strongholded um, all the Democrats and Republicans in both chambers, the House and the Senate, including the governor, uh, had convinced them that um, that communism, which had just started uh, with the Bolshevik Revolution and Leninism in the uh, Soviet Union or Russia at the time, they were concerned that communism would infiltrate through Catholic schools. And so they said, well, why not just get rid of all of them? Okay. So <laughs> they did. And the governor signed the bill and it went to the Supreme court in 1925. The Supreme court 
made the largest, biggest ever ruling on religious liberty ever in the history of the United States. Uh, they ruled nine to nothing in this case called Pierce versus Society of Sisters, and it involved St. Mary's Academy on Fifth Avenue in Portland. And uh, the Northwest Religious Liberty Association and the Seventh-day Adventist Church uh, went to bat uh, in behalf of not only St. Mary's Academy, the Catholic school, um, but also all people of faith and all religious schools throughout the state. And the Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing and said, are you guys, you know, are you guys nuts? Mm -hmm. uh, this, I mean, you know, religious freedom is America's first freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have a right to organize. Religious schools have a right to, uh, private and parochial schools have a right to exist and, and thrive. And uh, so they, you know, basically slapped them down, slapped them silly. So that was the first really big thing that the Northwest Religious Liberty Association was involved with. And back then it was known as the North Pacific Religious Liberty Association. But um, since then, we've, we've, uh, we've had 23 major successes in terms of legislative achievements, um, the two biggest being Idaho's uh, Free Exercise of Religion Act of 2000, which basically was a state religious freedom restoration act involving a restoration of the free exercise clause and specifically um, the um, compelling state interest in least restrictive means, legal tests, which are complicated terms and complicated ideas. But then the Workplace Religious Freedom Act for the state of Oregon was huge. It took us 10 years to get that bill mm -hmm. passed. And uh, that was the biggest achievement, which basically evens the playing field for both um, employees and employers uh, regarding Title VII uh, anti-discrimination law and accommodation law in the workplace regarding holy days and the wearing of religious garb in the workplace. So that that was huge and significant for us. So we're we've we've done a lot, and to be honest with you, it's quite tiring. And there's another bill that we want to uh, explore. We're not we're kind of neutral on it at this point um, because there's some pros and cons with what's called the Freedom for All Act, the FFA Act, um, that's uh, sponsored by Representative Chris Stewart out of Utah mm -hmm. and at the federal level in Congress. And um, I'm not sure that that bill will go anywhere at the federal level. I think it has much better chance in the state because the state level, state legislative level, because states, once you actually get sponsorship, um, state legislators know that uh, a bill can take all kinds of, can turn into all kinds of life forms along the way. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's worthwhile marketing at first to see if there's any interest, number one. And number two, basically get to get the lay of the land to see, you know, who really is, you know, first you're going to have knee-jerk responses one way or the other. Um, and we can talk about that. So mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, actually you're the one that's supposed to introduce that. So I'm sorry, I stole your thunder. No, not at all. Let, let's talk about the Fairness for All Act. And I, I think it's an interesting piece of legislation, um, you know, simply because we're, we're living at a time where it seems like both sides of the debates uh, of the debate over civil rights for LGBTQ people um, are waging kind of like all-out war on on each other, and um, but but here's a an example of a piece of legislation where some people from both sides came together and said, "Hey, let's see if we can find some common ground." Um, so, what what do you like about 
this piece of legislation, then we'll talk about what you don't like about it. What do you think about it as good? Well, yeah, okay. It, first, I just want to clarify something, if you don't mind, and that is sure. um, that it's a, it's basically a counter to the Equality Act that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the House uh, put together in Congress. And, and passed has recently. Not, yeah, and it hasn't gone to the Senate, or mm-hmm. at least the Senate's not taking it up, and I doubt if they ever will, unless the 2020 presidential election um, and congressional elections that accompany it mm-hmm. uh, reverse the um, the majority in the Senate to where it's a Democratic majority. Um, that said, I I personally don't think it's 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 really you say that it has bipartisan support uh, both by the LBGTQ and the evangelical community. But it's very slim on both very sides. Slim. That's and true. That's it's, true. It's not. It's not big, and that's its major weakness. And two other things that's really weak about it. Um, I don't. I don't want to say about whether I like it or not because at this point I'm neutral. I. I really want to test market it because I think something like this is going to take on several lives, and uh, it'll either die and nobody has any interest, and we're just in forever a fierce uh, partisan. Um, strife between the two communities, evangelical and LBGTQ. But let me give you some of the background and nature of this this bill. What they're what the bill's trying to do is basically um, thread a needle, which is is interesting. It's an interesting balancing act because back in 2015, it, basically this bill models a bill that I ha- actually helped defeat in Montana in 2015. In fact, the uh, the uh, just then retired Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for the state of Montana followed up my testimony, uh, in which I challenged um, the Montana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act bill proposal, and uh, we said we support it, but with four uh, amendments, uh, language-wise. And and I said, and and second of all, I said this bill is not even needed because the Montana state Supreme court going clear back as far as 1909, um, established strict scrutiny. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was really a bill that was not necessary. Nevertheless, I did state that bills can come forward to clarify existing, um, rulings by the Supreme court that has no statutory, uh, existence or authority. And I said, that's useful. So in that sense, uh, we backed the bill. Uh, but the bill had all kinds of funding issues, um, basically just blank uh, funding issues for private and religious institutions. And that was that was a no-no. That was a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment mm-hmm. regarding government funding of private and religious schools, direct funding, that is. Indirect, it's a different notion altogether, which we could discuss the difference between the two. But it was direct funding, all-out funding. And Second of all, uh, the the bill basically gave blank blank exemptions to business owners to uh, refuse services of products and uh, um, even basic consent to service uh, by small businesses and big businesses Hmm. uh, to refuse uh, same-sex couples for any services whatsoever. Hmm. And so we we did not support that. We believed that the law needed to support and back um, the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, decision in Obergefell, um, which you know backed same-sex marriage and also 
we we basically said no there, there's a way to do this i mean you know there's it, this leads to uh, all kinds of uh, partisanship and and problems it leads to anybody all of a sudden any business owner saying i suddenly have a religious, religious conscience and then you know then you have to prove it and the thing that that's interesting to me is that this uh freedom for all act um makes the first boo-boo with the religious funding schemes, but then it follows the track of the Supreme Court's decision in the Masterpiece Cakes ruling. Um, and, and I find that to be the most uh, interesting because I was at the U.S. Supreme Court for my annual um, um, Supreme Court Historical Society banquet right there in the Supreme Court Hall, uh, right near the chambers, which which I attend. And um, that's a lot of fun. I get to mingle with U.S. Supreme Court justices and sit down with chief justices and other uh, attorney generals from different states all across the country. And we sit at round tables, we discuss and talk. And I just kind of just, you know, weave my way into conversations and listen and over here and shake hands and get to know different people. And, mm-hmm. and in, into the room, into the two big grand ballrooms um, of where all the paintings for the these are side rooms in the Supreme Court chambers that very few people get to see, but they're the they're, they're huge chandeliers, uh, you know, red carpet, gold walls, and all these huge, huge uh, paintings of all the chief justices of the United States. And, uh, and they're in two different rooms of the hall cutting down the middle. And I was standing there talking to uh, Melvin Yurofsky, who's the author of... Uh, the biography of Justice Brandeis, and who's also the um, the editor uh, of the uh, the Supreme Court History Journal, and uh, we were talking about uh, what I wanted to do with my um, dissertation that I did at Baylor University on Sandra Day O'Connor's judicial philosophy and the role of religion in public life, and he was thrilled about that. He says, "Wow, somebody needs to write something on it. You're right. That's excellent." He was going over it with me and what I needed to do. And then in walks Clarence Thomas, Justice, uh, mm-hmm. Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, with his wife, big, tall, uh, white woman. And um, they graciously shook people's hands. And uh, Melvin was introducing me to, um, to Justice Thomas. And I shook his hand, and I told him what I did. And then he started waxing eloquently. And I, it didn't dawn on me, Steve, what had happened that day. <laughs> but that very day was the ruling of the Supreme Court on the Masterpiece Cakes decision in Colorado mm-hmm. regarding uh, this um, this baker who owned a shop called Masterpiece Cakes mm-hmm. um, Jack shop Phillips. that Dick yeah Jack Phillips had strictly did cakes and he was very upset that the Supreme Court didn't give a all out blank exemption um, to. Uh, business owners who suddenly had a religious conscience. This ruling by the Supreme Court was very interesting because this Jack Phillips fellow, obviously his his business products uh, had a strictly sectarian uh, um, purpose, right. meaning that his cakes had religious messages on them, and his clientele was almost wholly, um, and I don't mean that as a pun, H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, uh, a holy or a strictly religious, and he had religious messages on them, which, which interestingly, the court uh, really applied Title VII law when it comes to what's 
held to be sincerely religious or sincerely held religious belief. And he clearly demonstrated that by his products um, and his, even his, his mission and, and, and so forth of his business mission. And so it obviously was a very narrow ruling, um, but even some liberals came across to vote, yeah, this is fine. But what it did is it gave a, a pyrrhic or pyrrhic, however you pronounce that word, victory to evangelicals. And yet, really, if you really examine the ruling, it was really a huge victory for the LBGTQ community because it basically says the rest of you businesses, even though we haven't ruled on you based upon this ruling, hey, you're out of luck. I mean, if you suddenly claim you have a religious conscience, but your business products and your business model and your business mission isn't, you know, sectarian, and you can't demonstrate that you have a sincerely held religious belief, then um, your claim is suspect. That's kind of the way it left it. Well, and, and it, uh, it, it just—I think it kind of also blamed the uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission, right? And basically said, "Well, they messed yes. up." And then, given all these considerations. Uh, whatever the outcome of some future case involving similar facts, we just know that right. this case uh, has to be, you know, set aside. And yeah, I, I think they punted it. I mean, they didn't. They they both gave a victory to the LGBTQ community in a way, but they also kind of just, you know, avoided the issue in a way, except for with this particular case. Well, and that's why Clarence Thomas is upset because was upset. it, it yeah. didn't. His, it didn't. It didn't apply his his efforts, he's always tried to destroy the neutrality doctrine in the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. which basically says there's no meaningful um, constitutional separation of church-state except for um, as states want to apply them, and it's really a state decision. Uh, in fact, Thomas would go even as far as to say that states can approve uh, through taxation, the churches that they approve of and, and support them financially. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a real problem. I mean, Thomas wants to basically state that the Establishment Clause, which First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, comma, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, he basically wants to turn the Establishment Clause into basically saying that that was only for the federal government. The mm -hmm. prohibition against religious establishments was only for the federal government, not for the state, not for state government. States can do whatever they want, essentially, is what he's saying. He doesn't but, like the 14th Amendment. No, he doesn't. He's exactly where I was going to go. He doesn't like the 14th Amendment, especially the incorporation doctrine, which the Supreme Court has, has seen as necessary because, you know, the founders, the original founders, vis-a-vis -vis also the 68th Congress, which was the uh, Civil War Amendment's founders, uh, especially the 14th Amendment, where uh, they incorporated the first Bill of Rights, the uh, first eight Bill of Rights, uh, and made it enforceable at the state level by the federal government for the first time in U.S. history, meaning that states basically could say to the federal government, hey, you know, you don't have a right to tell us how to uh, govern our people in our states regarding uh, religious freedom and civil liberties, uh, we can do what we want, which meant uh, oppression, mm -hmm. and it meant slavery. It meant all kinds of things. It meant segregation. It meant uh, you name it. Um, so the bottom line is that all changed. And so uh, they would like to do away with that principle and, mm -hmm. uh, and turn it back to what they think is the original intent of the founders of 1787. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the big debate uh, doctrine-wise. But 
when it came, coming back to the masterpiece cakes decision, um, yes, it appeared that the, um, was it the County you said, or, uh, the whoever. commission, the civil rights commission the, there in Colorado, the yeah. civil rights commission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Appeared to be very hostile to this baker. Um, and so the Supreme court pushed back on that. So it gave, you know, the evangelical community, a, a foot in the door, mm-hmm. but in, in all reality, uh, it, it, in my opinion, it was a huge victory for the LBGT community because it basically says, unless you have a strict, uh, a sincerely held religious, um, business model and accompanied by your products, uh, you can't just suddenly stand up and claim a, a religious conscience to then discriminate against same sex people who come in seeking business services. And, and, and what's really amazing about this is, you know, I, I know that religious people have a right to stand up and, and claim rights, but why would we claim a right that's so, and, and forgive my theological uh, and historical um, language here, but it's so pharisaical and legalistic. I mean, why would I, in a benign business setting, making a profit, why wouldn't I want to be inclusive by um, befriending a same-sex couple coming into my business and using that actually as a witness and business model to witness to them? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I personally think why not be open and inclusive instead of exclusive, no, we will not serve you. I mean, right. that's, like, that's like back in the old days uh, where, well, you're black and my Bible says that uh, you're inferior and, uh, you know, and you're really of the devil and we don't have to serve you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what blacks, African-Americans had to deal with forever. Right. And sudden, suddenly, you know, we think we can have a religious conscience. Well, I'm not so sure that's a, a Christ-like conscience. I, I, I'm sorry. I really question that. I really do. Well, and now, just, just to play the other side, you know, I, I agree with you on that, by the sure. way. Um, I think when you, when you think about, for example, certain business activities, like let's say a wedding photographer where they're, you know, cataloging, you know, whatever you want to call it, this event that they uh, theologically disagree with, you know, it, I wonder, you know, in those things where you, if it appears like you're endorsing this this uh, decision, this lifestyle that you you have convictions against, I, I could see perhaps where someone with religious convictions uh, needs to say, "No, I just I can't do that. I'm sorry." But yeah, in, in a general commercial setting, it, it it doesn't seem like it would even make sense from even a religious standpoint to refuse service. But I, I can see how there might be a couple of cases, for example, like wedding photographers, maybe. I think his his argument was that he was creating art, and uh, it would basically by the decorating the cake, you know, he's he's endorsing their union. Wasn't that what he his problem with it? Well, yeah, I I, I personally, <laughs> I, I guess for me theologically, and obviously we're not talking legally here. I think when you're just talking legally, I think you can go down that road of of Phariseeism. You can go down the road of legalism, obviously. And it's perfectly legitimate. But I, if you're looking at it biblically, I mean, I look at Christ. I mean, he mingled with wine. I mean, they called him a wine-bibber. They called him Belzebub. I mean, mm-hmm. he went to weddings people didn't agree with. He did all kinds of different things that ate and drank with people. He, you know, the Pharisees were constantly at his feet, at his heels, um, and always trying to attack him for every little thing. And 
you know, Jesus was inclusive. I, I think if he was a photographer, I think he would have celebrated the, uh, the wedding of a same sex couple. And, and at the same time, um, basically constantly provide them the model of holiness that he would provide to them that, Hey, here, here's, here's my direction. You know, if you want to mm-hmm. follow me, you can, but in the meantime, I'm, I'm, I'm allowing you the choice. You've made your choice. It's, it's like a father. I mean, I think the person who really models this, in fact, a couple, was the vice president. His name is Dick Cheney and Lynn Cheney, his wife. And there's, there's a problem between the oldest daughter and the youngest daughter. The youngest daughter is a, a representative in Congress right now. And I, you know, I look at uh, the oldest daughter, who's, who's, who's a same-sex person, uh, a lesbian, and professed lesbian, and you know, Dick and, and Lynn Cheney says, hey, leave her alone. We support her fully. We support all of her rights. We support it all, you know, and mm-hmm. um, we love her just as much as our other daughter. And I just think, you know, Christ would go out of his way. He's, Christ is our father. I mean, if you consider the Trinity, I mean, they're one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus is our Father, and in that sense, and Jesus, you know, uh, loves us all. Does that mean he uh, condones our sins? No. And does that mean just because he takes photogra- uh, photography at a wedding, of a same-sex couple wedding, um, I, I don't consider that uh, condoning anything. I'm sure. just, it's a business model that says, hey, I'm inclusive. I'm, I'm still, you know, all the while that same couple knows that you're religious, you're Christian, Mm -hmm. you have your Christian values, um, you know, that disagree with theirs and they, they know that. And you, and you can, you can even verbalize that. And, and I have found with many, but you're still going to serve them people that, that they respect that they respect you for your values. They just ask you to, you know, be understanding of them. Sure. You know, sure. and 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 that's it. That doesn't mean we have to support them, condone them. No, it means that, you know, uh, well, let me give you another example. We had a situation in a church where a same-sex couple came and had their baby dedicated. And the pastor dedicated them. And uh the church just went up in arms. Mm-hmm. Uh after the service, literally it split the church. Um you know, membership-wise. And uh what's interesting is I think of the little children that Jesus, you know, blessed. Uh, all the while, as the children were entering in with their parents, the disciples started saying, no, 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 don't bother him. And if you look at the context, and the, uh, this is, of course, imagined. We don't know this exactly to be sure, but it, would, it seems to be that the disciples, in, in adherence with certain uh, Jewish rules and laws and everything, um, were and, and customs uh, were basically applying the Pharisaical or rabbinical rule to you know to choose which parents were were upstanding and 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 legitimate and suitable to have their children blessed. In other words, it was sort of a class class division, meaning they were sorting out parents and children as to who was worthy to be blessed by Jesus. And Jesus says, "No, no, no! Suffer the little children to come to me." You know, I'm sure there were adulterers in the mix. I'm sure there was some families that were not acceptable in that crowd, you know, who had children that they wanted them, those parents wanted their children to be blessed. And Christ says, no, it doesn't matter. Let them come to me so I can bless them all. And I, and I think that's the same way. Jesus was always inclusive, and that's the model, I think, that we 
Christians need to um, put forward. So back well, to the original no, bill, if you want to talk about that. I do. Uh, and I just before you do, I think you made some excellent points there. And I think one thing that you know, we should point out is that, listen, you know, right now it's, it's gay marriage. That's the issue. But if we're going to be honest and we're going to say, we're not going to serve people because um, of this particular thing that we view as sin. What about all the other things like people getting married in a heterosexual marriage, but it's not biblically appropriate to do that, you know? Um, and, and you brought that up. So I, I think uh, yeah, and, and, there's and, hypocrisy yeah, We serve here. them. We serve them. There's serve no problem them. with that, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah. So let's talk about the Fairness for All Act. And what, a, so basically you're kind of uh, saying that the Fairness for All Act in, in some ways is modeled after uh, what the Masterpiece Cake Shop didn't really no, totally. do. Kind of what Justice no, Thomas wanted it, in a way, right? No, no, it's no. It doesn't give what Thomas wants. In fact, well, I mean, I, not I the establishment it, stuff, but it, it, it. I find the Fairness for All Act to actually be more supportive of the LBGT community uh, than than even Christians. I, I personally think whoever put this together uh, uh, went out of their way to uh, really make sure that the Obergefell decision was fully respected okay. and adhered to, along with. Um, Following the uh, the model of the masterpiece cakes decision, meaning that it's basically, in a way, I think it's an appeal to business owners that if you really want to, um, you know, have uh, a religious conscience and you want to go down that legalistic road, then you need to make all your services uh, uh, and products, your business model, your mission to demonstrate that it's sincerely held religious belief because the court has allowed for that in that decision. So Mm -hmm. if it's allowed for that, then it seems that businesses need to start squaring up. Uh, Christian uh, employers need to start squaring that up and create a model. Okay. So if they're going to pass scrutiny, they're going to have to follow the, the, the law of the land, which currently is the masterpiece decision. Okay. So, I'm not sure the Fairness for All Act really does that, but I think in spirit it's trying to do that and at the same time try to get as much as it can like it did in the uh, the Montana bill, the State Religious Freedom Restoration Act bill that we defeated in 2015, and which provides all kinds of religious funding, but without necessarily the blank exemptions. I, I don't see how you can put forward a bill with blank exemptions and then say that it's fair to the LGBTQ community. To me, that's it's an, it would be an attempt to override current existing law, both in Obergefell and Masterpiece. Um, so I, I, you know, from my reading of the bill, I think I, I really believe that um, there's some. Uh, they did a good job in making sure that both sides are basically getting, you know, what they want. But the way the Christian community is going to have to get what they want in terms of their business models, they're going to have to demonstrate that it's sincerely held religious um, business. And Well, and, and one of the things with the Equality Act that I think a lot of Christian mm-hmm. organizations had a problem with was that it wasn't spelled out clearly, some people said, that religious colleges and universities, for example, were exempt from its provisions this act does actually uh, spell that out. You know, if you read through, and I haven't read through every word of the Fairness for All Act here, but, um, you know, they, they actually 
spell out the safeguards for religious organizations receiving uh, federal financial assistance, which, you know, here in California, of course, um, has been a big issue with uh, legislation that was proposed here recently. Um, mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, so so the, let's put the small businesses aside for me. Let's talk about like religious colleges and universities in the Fairness for All Act. Does that uh, protect them? Well, yes, but but what I uh, let's go back to basically governmental structures here. I I really think that that the only um, way that the Freedom for All Act will have any impact, possibly, and this is this is a long shot, is that the Senate actually co-ops uh, Representative Stewart's bill. The senators, some Republican senators, take it up and actually use it to carve up the House bill if they decide to take up that House bill that was passed, the Equality Act. Oh, I see. What and you're transform mm-hmm. it, okay. and transform it, which is often done at the federal level, and 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 in quick order. So I I would not be surprised if the Senate decided to take it up that they would use this Freedom for All Act and carve it up. The problem is, is this, Steve. I'll just be honest with you. The most vehement attacks on the Freedom for All Act is, I think, the opposite of what you've suggested to me. I think it's coming from evangelicals. Um, I, I've read all kinds of reviews about this from the evangelical side, and they're absolutely dead set opposed. They they want all out war. They want they want Obergefell uh, overturned. They they and through the through the federal courts and through the Supreme Court by stacking judges uh, of their you know ilk or what they want, and and so forth. And so they view this as an all out war and battle. They don't want to compromise anywhere. No, that's true. So I don't. Yeah. I don't, I don't see the problem in terms of compromise and negotiation. I don't see the problem, really, with the LBGTQ community. I see it on the other side. Yes, there's some harsh language that's come from a few voices from the, you know, the gay community. But it's, it's for the most part, I think, uh, at least from Representative Stewart's perspective in Utah and the Utah experiment, which is another story altogether, um, shows that, you know, they're willing to talk and they're willing to be reasonable and to get together with the evangelical community and say, hey, you know, hey, we we respect your rights. You know, let's let's see if we can work together to create uh, a balancing test here that respects both sides. And and I'm not sure the Fairness for All Act has really achieved that. Thanks for listening to Do Justice. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate the Do Justice podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Do Justice Now. <laughs>